John Garfield is a fighter, inspires Hollywood's future rebels, asks for his man-maker, and just may give you $200. It's my star spotlight on John Garfield. I'm Shannon, and you're listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. This episode of Vanguard of Hollywood is brought to you by PhotoWall. PhotoWall is a company that specializes in high-quality wallpapers, posters, and canvases. My favorite PhotoWall products are their high-quality classic movie poster canvases. I can't stop looking at the movie poster PhotoWall sent me from one of my favorite film noirs, 1946's The Big Sleep. The picture is crisp, the colors pop, and I was able to custom choose the size so the canvas is perfectly scaled to my space. For the next month, all Vanguard of Hollywood listeners and visitors to my website, macaronsandmimi.com, can enjoy 25% off of any photo wall purchase. Just use code macaronsandmimi25 at checkout. Visit my website, macaronsandmimi.com, for all about my photo wall experience pics of my gorgeous canvas, and my personal favorite classic film posters that PhotoWall offers. Or go straight to their website, photowall.com, to find the perfect art or classic movie poster for your home. And remember, use code macaronsandmimi25 at checkout. Take advantage of this great deal while it lasts. And now, back to my star spotlight. John Garfield. Have you heard of him? Maybe. If not, it's probably because Garfield's list of films that made it to classic status, including The Postman Always Rings Twice and Gentleman's Agreement, is quite limited. But John Garfield was one of the most popular and respected actors of his day. A success in his very first film, Garfield is recognized as the first on-screen rebel, inspiring the generations of rebels and anti-heroes that followed, including Montgomery Clift, Marlon Brando, and James Dean. John Garfield wasn't the typical classic Hollywood leading man. Aside from his rebel image, Garfield was trained in New York by the group theater, often considered the forerunner to the actor's studio and the method style of acting. He was successful on Broadway before he transitioned to Hollywood, and despite his stage and film stardom, John Garfield never forgot his humble beginnings as a kid fighting for survival on the streets of New York. Like Marilyn Monroe and James Dean, he died tragically young. But unlike Monroe and Dean, John Garfield never attained legendary status, possibly because his death at age 39 was brought on by slanderous accusations of the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, during the communist witch hunts of the 1950s. John Garfield deserves to be remembered. And this month, it's all about bringing the tremendous Garfield legacy to life. So here are a few things about John Garfield you didn't know. First, he grew up on the streets of New York. Julius Jacob Garfinkel was born March 4, 1913. Julie, as the future movie star would always be called by those who knew him best, 
spent his first years in a two-room tenement on Rivington Street in New York's Lower East Side. His parents, David and Hannah Garfinkel, came to the U.S. in 1919 to escape the religious pogroms against Russia's Jewish population. Things were certainly better for the Garfinkels in America, but that didn't mean life was easy. The Garfinkel tenement had no heating, and there was one bathroom for the whole floor to share. David worked hard as a pants presser by day and a Jewish cantor by night, but it wasn't enough to provide a comfortable living for his family. Still, young Julie was a cheerful child thanks to the optimistic spirit of his mother. Unfortunately, Hannah Garfinkel would die in 1920. Julie's father, not knowing how to cope, didn't tell his oldest son of Hannah's passing until weeks later. As John Garfield recalled, quote, They shipped me off to an uncle's house, telling me only that my mother was ill. When I returned a few weeks later, I naturally expected to find her there. When I finally realized why she wasn't, the shock was harder to bear because I'd had no preparation for it. Unquote. Tough going for anyone, especially a seven-year-old kid. After Hannah's passing, the care of Julie and his younger brother Max was too much for David. The brothers were soon separated. Max went to live permanently in the home of a Garfinkel relative in Brooklyn, but Julie didn't fare so well. From the age of seven until he became an independent young adult, Julie was passed around the homes of various relatives. Often, he ate at a different home than he slept at. Understandably, the fractured upbringing and separation meant Julie never got close to his father or his brother. In reaction to the lack of love and attention at home, Julie Garfinkel turned to the streets. He'd credit his mother Hannah with preparing him for this rough life. It was Hannah who taught him how to be a fighter. And to survive the streets of New York, young Julie would literally have to know how to fight. John Garfield remembered that, quote, The streets were our playground and our jungle, and you behaved like an animal or you got your block knocked off. Unquote. As a movie star, John Garfield liked to boast that he got so good at using his fists, the classier kids crossed the street when they saw him coming. Julie soon joined a gang in one of the Bronx neighborhoods he was shuffled to. Eventually, he became the leader of two different gangs, one of which Julie named the Arrows, inspired by Robin Hood, as the boys liked to steal from the rich and give to the poor. Of his years with the gangs, Julie later said that, quote, being the boss of a gang was important. It compensated for the attention I wanted at home and missed. Unquote. Life on the street may have taught young Julie to steal, but it also taught him loyalty, an admirable character trait John Garfield would live by and, quite literally, die by. Looking back, friends and classmates of Julie's would say that, as a Hollywood star, John Garfield often exaggerated the delinquency of his youth. They remember a boy who was tough, but never really was a bad kid, thanks to Julie's kind heart and underlying sweetness, both of which were apparent even as a gang boss. Journalist Sam Shaw confirmed this, quote, I never felt Julie was a fighter. There was no meanness in him. He didn't have that streak of a killer in him, unquote. Though he probably wouldn't have ever become public enemy number one, as Julie later liked to say, given the rough circumstances of his early years, 
another Garfield prediction about his life path may not have been too far-fetched. Quote, I suppose it was a 50-50 chance then which I would achieve, Sing Sing or Hollywood. Unquote. Thanks to a good teacher, the course of Julie Garfinkel's life veered away from Sing Sing and towards acting. My next John Garfield fact, a good teacher changed the course of his life. Angelo Patri, an Italian immigrant to the United States, ran Public School 45 in the Belmont section of the East Bronx. Patry was a firm believer that each child had a unique talent just waiting to be discovered, and that it was the teacher's duty to guide his or her students towards finding that talent. And for a student like Julie Garfinkel, who didn't have all that much parental support, Patry believed the guidance of a good teacher was even more crucial. So when young Julie transferred to PS45, Angelo Patry was indeed a lifesaver. As a thankful John Garfield later shared, quote, For a lost boy to be found, someone has to do the finding. Dr. Patry found me, and for reaching into the garbage pail and pulling me out, I owe him everything. The good things that came my way would not have been possible but for that sweet, funny man. Unquote. Angelo Patry provided for Julie's physical health, even buying him a mattress when Patry discovered that Julie's bed was nothing more than a pile of old coats in the hallway of his uncle's home. But more importantly, Patry guided Julie to acting. He believed a speech class would help improve Julie's confidence by eliminating his stammer. Well, speech classes not only eliminated that stammer, they showed that Julie Garfinkel had a flair for the dramatic. His recitations were flawless, and soon Julie began acting and performing. He featured prominently in school plays and even became a champion debater, winning second prize in a citywide contest. Acting became Julie's passion. And in 1929, he left high school to study with New York's prestigious American Laboratory Theater. From here, things continued to look up for young Julie in his chosen career. And it was all thanks to the support of an insightful, dedicated teacher who believed in him. Another John Garfield fact? He married his childhood sweetheart. Teenage Jules Garfield, he changed his name slightly for his stage career, met Roberta Seedman at the home of one of his girlfriends during his first year of training at the lab, and he was immediately taken with the petite beauty. Roberta, or Robbie as she preferred to be called, was impressed with Julie's lab membership and promising acting career, but not particularly interested in him. And she still wasn't interested when the two met a year later at a party. But she let him take her home. As Robbie remembered, quote, he wanted to take me home, but one of my girlfriends gave me the no signal because he was known around the neighborhood as a wolf. But I said yes anyway. And he didn't even try to kiss me goodnight. Unquote. So maybe he was a respectful wolf, at least where Robbie was concerned. It seems Julie knew from the start that the beautiful and intelligent Robbie Seedman was different. And he was willing to wait for her to feel the same way about him. Julie hoped that telling her about his plans to hitchhike with a buddy across the country would help Robbie recognize her love for him, or at least get him a little action before he left. But neither happened. 
As John Garfield later shared, quote, It was a warm day and we were up on the roof of Robbie's house. I said I was going away because I felt it was my need. And all she said was, Everybody knows his need. There I was, shoving off, and she wouldn't even give me a tumble. Unquote. Julie and his friend, with nothing but knapsacks packed with the bare necessities, began their journey. He sent Robbie postcards from the various places they hitched or train hopped to, including the Pacific Northwest, where the boys were lumberjacks, and California, where they picked fruit. Julie may not have known if Robbie had serious feelings for him, but the experience of living in the homeless encampments of the Great Depression solidified his desire to become a professional actor. Quote, Every railroad junction had its hobo village, and I learned something of the force that keeps a man going when he has nothing to live for. Not all hobos were misfits. There were doctors and lawyers among them, alcoholics, even an occasional ex-actor. One evening, we were around the fire putting away some of that delicious hobo stew, and my friend said something about me being an actor. Everyone wanted a sample, so I did some bits of Shakespeare, and I got this strange feeling. Every eye and ear was turned on me, and I realized that for a moment, I was helping these men shut out the rest of the world. You know, there's nothing like a hobo's applause. They don't try to impress anyone with polite custom. If they clap, it's the real thing. That was the first time I thought maybe Angelo Patry was right, that I had a gift. Unquote. Finally, Julie made his way back to Robbie, stopping to work the wheat harvest in Nebraska along the way, where Julie unfortunately contracted typhoid fever from drinking dirty well water. But the positive side was that when Julie came home in desperate need of a nurse, Robbie was there for him. The experience of missing Julie and nursing him back to health did the trick. Robbie and Julie officially became a couple. Robbie Seedman remembered that, quote, no Jewish parents wanted their daughter to marry an actor because an actor was a bum, unquote. But Julie, with his charm and steady work, eventually received the blessings of Robbie's parents, and the two were married on January 27, 1935. Together, Julie and Robbie would weather the happy but near-impoverished years of his early stage career as well as the extreme wealth and adulation that came with movie stardom. Robbie would stick by Julie through his rampant infidelities that began with his success in Hollywood, and Julie, in turn, would stick by Robbie and refuse to mention her Communist Party membership when he was subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee and expected to name names in 1951. It wasn't a perfect marriage, but there's no doubt that Robbie and Julie loved each other. Another John Garfield fact, he was a member of the group theater. In the theater world of 1930s America, just about every actor and actress wanted to be a member of the prestigious group theater. And Julie Garfield proudly held that hard-earned distinction. Founded in 1931 by Cheryl Crawford, Harold Clerman, and the father of method acting, Lee Strasberg, the goal of the group theater was to present plays that said something. Plays that were relevant to the times, politically, and otherwise. These plays were realistically acted, and sometimes written, by the talented actors who basically made the group their lives. 
group members lived together, worked together, and played together. It's debatable just how political the group was. Former member director Martin Ritt says it was, quote, definitely not a political group, unquote, while group actress Phoebe Brand believed that every member of the group was, quote, in some way touched by the communist cause, unquote. Either way, Julie's group membership would eventually be used against him by the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1951. Political or not, group members were, as Elia Kazan put it, the revolutionary flower children of American theater. John Garfield forever viewed his membership as one of the greatest accomplishments of his career. He and Robbie wept tears of joy the day he was accepted as an apprentice in 1934. Julie later went so far as to say that, quote, I didn't learn a thing about acting until I joined the group theater, unquote. In addition to founders Strasberg, Crawford, and Clerman, other noteworthy group members included Franco Tone, Luther Adler, Stella Adler, Elia Kazan, and the actor-turned-playwright Clifford Odets, who would become one of Julie's best friends for life. Even after achieving Hollywood stardom, Julie held the talent and opinions of his group colleagues as the highest bar of intelligence, an intelligence Julie believed he could only aspire to. Though Julie earned full membership after his stellar performance in the group's production of Clifford Odette's Awake and Sing, he was often treated with something less than respect by the other group members, largely because of his youth, lack of formal education, and more instinctual acting approach. Julie's success in more commercial Broadway productions, and eventually in Hollywood, added jealousy to the list of reasons why his group colleagues treated him poorly. Just about every member of the group tried for a film career in Hollywood, usually with minimal to zero success, while Julie, on the other hand, became a superstar. And that takes us to my next John Garfield fact. It took him five years to say yes to Hollywood. John Garfield was first approached by the major Hollywood studios for a film contract in 1931 after shining in a small Broadway role. Feeling he had more to learn about acting and that the New York stage, not Hollywood, was the place to do it, Julie said no. But Hollywood came calling again after Julie landed a starring role in a non-group theater production, the light and very commercial Having Wonderful Time. The play became one of the hit Broadway shows of 1937, thanks in large part to the critically praised performance of Jules Garfield. Initially, Julie took the advice of Robbie and his group theater colleagues and said no to this latest batch of Hollywood contract offers. But one studio in particular persisted. Warner Brothers wouldn't take no for an answer. The studio even agreed to meet Julie's request that any contract he signed would allow him the freedom to return to the Broadway stage for work each year. The attractive Warner's offer coupled with the group's increasingly condescending attitude towards him for finding commercial success and having wonderful time, made Julie reconsider. Most likely, the final straw that pushed Julie to sign with Warners was the group's refusal to cast him in the lead role of Clifford Odette's latest play, Golden Boy, the role Odette's had written expressly for Julie. So Julie signed with Warner Brothers. Afterwards, 
many of his group theater friends refused to speak to him for the remaining run of Golden Boy as punishment for his great transgression, also known as jealous beyond words. But Robbie's discovery that she was pregnant proved confirmation for Julie that he'd made the right choice. As Julie himself put it, with his $750 a week salary, at the very least, he'd earn a generous amount of diaper money during his time in Hollywood. My next John Garfield fact, he went to Hollywood to fail. Julie went to Hollywood fully expecting to find himself back home in New York after making the two films his new contract required. He never expected Warner Brothers to renew his option and keep him at the studio for seven years. As John Garfield remembered, quote, I went to Hollywood to be a failure. I wanted to be a failure. My purpose was to earn some money quickly so that we'd be prepared when our child was born. Unquote. On another occasion, Garfield would say he went to Hollywood, quote, all set for the kick in the pants I felt sure I would get. Unquote. Things certainly didn't look too promising at first when studio head Jack Warner informed Julie that his new name would be James Garfield, as in the same name as a former U.S. president. Luckily, when Julie pointed this out, Warner agreed it probably wasn't the best name for his latest star investment. But Warner also thought that Jules Garfield, the name Julie had used on stage and wished to keep in films, was too effeminate. The two men eventually decided on John Garfield. After he became a movie star, the name would always be Julie's litmus test of who his true friends, past and present, were. Quote, My friends still call me Julie, and Julie I'll always be. Unquote. Despite the rocky start at Warner Brothers, John Garfield was a hit in his first film role. As struggling musician Mickey Borden in Four Daughters, Julie introduced what many film historians consider to be the first on-screen rebel. Garfield's Mickey, with his rumpled suit and disheveled, long, well, at least for the time, long hair, is always ready with a downer one-liner, constantly sasses off to his elders, and seems convinced that he's born to lose. And yet, thanks to the Garfield charm, Evident even in this, his very first screen role, we love him. The role made John Garfield a star and a heartthrob overnight and earned Julie his first Oscar nomination in the Best Supporting Actor category. Not bad for your first film role. The downside of starting off with a successful film was the discovery Julie soon made that Warner Brothers wouldn't always offer him such plum roles or allow him much room for growth and character experimentation. He loved being a star, but John Garfield found his seven years at the studio and the Hollywood environment in general stifling. Quote, When an actor doesn't face the conflict, he loses confidence in himself. I always want to have to struggle because I believe it will help me accomplish more. Hollywood is a marvelous medium, but you can't always take chances there. And I believe the more successful an actor becomes, the more chances he should take. An actor never stops learning. Unquote. His contractual right to return to New York for stage work, which Julie actually took advantage of, unlike most Hollywood stars with similar arrangements, 
and his dreams to one day have his own production company helped Julie get through these years on the Warner Brothers production line. Another John Garfield fact, he loved women. Julie's friend Clifford Odets was one of the few group theater members who, right from the start, knew Julie would find success in Hollywood. But Odets had a warning for his young friend, quote, Julie, if you stay in pictures a year, you'll stay in them always. Failure isn't in you. You'll succeed, go up, whatever, better than anyone who's been in the group or is in it now. The big challenge is in handling success when you get it, unquote. For the most part, Julie remained his sweet, lovable self even after he became a movie star. But he did have a weakness, women. And with Hollywood success came easy access to the most beautiful women in the world. Unfortunately, after years of remaining faithful to his wife Robbie in New York, Julie couldn't resist the temptation to stray in Hollywood. As friend Jerry Schlein put it, quote, he would have to have been made of iron to withstand it, unquote. Another of Julie's friends would say that, quote, Hollywood got a little the best of him. It wasn't any one girl, it was girls. To be fair about it, he didn't chase them, not at the start. They chased him. The trouble was, he'd married young, and Julie was easy pickings. Unquote. Hollywood folklore says John Garfield's success with the ladies was prolific, even legendary. Some would actually call it an addiction. And since he truly loved his wife, Julie felt guilty every time he strayed. There'd be separations over the years, and the Garfields quite possibly were on the verge of divorcing for good at the time of Julie's death, but something made Robbie stick by her husband for nearly 17 years of marriage, no matter what. My next John Garfield fact, he was generous. John Garfield wasn't perfect, but he did possess many admirable traits, one of which was his generosity. His generosity may have stemmed from the fact that Julie had known poverty firsthand, but it was also just his natural inclination to give. Even after finding success in Hollywood, Julie never forgot his roots, or the people who helped him along the way. Angelo Patri was Julie's greatest, and perhaps only supporter in his youth, and Julie, forever grateful, made a point of speaking at the PS45 graduation ceremonies over the years, inspiring young high school graduates to reach for the stars just as Patry had inspired him. I love that. As a wealthy star of stage and film, Julie was always a soft touch when asked to lend his name to a cause or if a friend needed a little money. And sometimes, you didn't even have to be a friend to be the recipient of the Garfield generosity. Conductor Lehman Engel remembered an incident in 1940 when Julie starred in the Broadway production of Heavenly Express. A man came backstage, said, Hello, John, and introduced himself as an old friend from PS45. The two exchanged pleasantries. Then the man asked for $200. Without hesitating, Julie gave him the money, and the man left. Engel then asked Julie if he really had any memory of the guy. No, Julie said. He was a phony. Whenever somebody calls me John instead of Julie, I know they're phonies. 
But as Julie's generous heart saw it, if the man needed money desperately enough to spend such a yarn, he probably really needed the money, and Julie was happy to help. My next John Garfield fact? He wasn't a communist. John Garfield would be one of the many Hollywood stars whose reputation and career were severely damaged by the communist witch hunts of the late 1940s and early 1950s. Julie was subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, and expected to name names when he appeared as a friendly witness before HUAC on April 23, 1951. To set the record straight, John Garfield never was a communist. He supported countless liberal causes over the years, and he certainly had close friends and associates who were party members and fellow travelers, most notably his own wife. But Julie was a registered Democrat who, in his own words, quote, voted on the Democratic ticket all the time, unquote. Countless friends over the years would say that Julie's politics were surface level, driven by emotional appeal, and not much else. Writer-director Abraham Polanski perhaps summarized Julie's politics best, quote, Sure, he supported the liberal causes, but he wanted to be a famous actor. He didn't want to change the world, unquote. Often, the only reason Julie signed his name to a petition or gave his support to an organization was because Robbie or a friend asked him to. He didn't really understand or care a whole lot about what he was being asked to support. He trusted the intelligence and integrity of the person asking for his support. But Hewak wouldn't see Julie's politics that way. And unfortunately, the price would be his life. Another John Garfield fact? He died young. John Garfield suffered from a weakened heart the majority of his life. About with scarlet fever in childhood, coupled with the typhoid fever he contracted as a young man hitchhiking across the country, may have been the cause. But at the very least, the two illnesses certainly didn't help Julie's heart. Between 1944 and 1950, John Garfield suffered from at least three known heart attacks. His wife Robbie believed Julie probably endured more small, undiagnosed heart attacks along the way. Julie's heart murmur would lead to his 4F classification during World War II, barring him from military service. It proved one of his life's greatest disappointments, but the patriotic Julie would make up for it by entertaining the troops overseas several times during the war years, and by founding, in 1942, the Hollywood Canteen, a club where enlisted men could dance and mingle with movie stars. Doctors advised him to slow down after each heart attack, but it was advice the active Julie just couldn't take. As co-star Geraldine Fitzgerald recalled, quote, He had a bad heart, but he still wouldn't slow down. He was always playing tennis, always doing something strenuous, as if he was trying to overcome this limitation. Unquote. Julie's weakened heart and the vicious accusations of the House Un-American Activities Committee proved a deadly combination. On May 21, 1952, Julie died as a result of the stress defending himself and his friends against HUAC put on his heart. He was 39 years old. Even more tragically, Julie's death occurred shortly before HUAC admitted that they never actually had any evidence that he was a communist. Sending an innocent man to his grave 
I can't imagine living with that guilt. And my final and much lighter John Garfield fact is he had a great sense of humor. It was one of John Garfield's greatest regrets that he never had the chance to really show his flair for comedy on screen. Garfield melodramas, gangster flicks, and film noirs were usually moneymakers, so Warner Brothers and the other studios he worked for saw no reason to let Julie branch out into comedy. Writer Ted Allen called Julie's sense of humor delicious and was one of many who admired his friend's rare ability to laugh at himself. One of my favorite Garfield anecdotes that underscores both his humor and ability to laugh at himself involves what Julie liked to call his man-maker. Secondary leading man Dane Clark shared that he always enjoyed working with Julie because both men were roughly 5'7". As Clark shared, quote, I was so sick of playing opposite actors who I had to look up to, like Raymond Macy and Cary Grant, unquote. So when Clark discovered that he'd be playing a second lead to Julie in 1943's Destination Tokyo, he was super excited to not have to look up to the leading man for once. But Clark was in for a major disappointment. When the two men were about to film their first scene together, Julie turned to the prop man and said, Bring me my man-maker. Man-maker? What the hell is a man-maker? The confused Dane Clark asked. He didn't have to wonder long. The prop man brought out a small box, which Julie promptly stepped up on. He was now a few inches taller than the greatly disappointed Dane Clark. As explanation to Clark, and to the amusement of the whole cast and crew, Julie smiled and good-naturedly said, One day, when you're a star, you can have a man-maker too. And that's it for my introduction to John Garfield. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, macronsandmimi.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. And be sure to join me next time on Vanguard of Hollywood as I go behind the scenes of a classic film that paired John Garfield with one of my very favorite actresses, the lovely and impossibly glamorous Lana Turner. You probably know the film I'm talking about. It's 1946's The Postman Always Rings Twice.